The Tuffle Commute, Episode 6, Summer, in which we talk about the value of the ELT industry to the UK economy, especially over the summer months, about the silly season in summer, about what teachers like to do during the summer months, and about silly news items in general. This is the Tuffle Commute. Let's get started. You're listening to the Tefl Commute Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Tefl Commute, a podcast for language teachers that is not about language teaching, although the topic will surely come up. My name is Lindsay Clanfield. And I'm Sean Wilden. That was very smooth, Lindsay. You've, yeah, six episodes, and you've, you're getting smooth with that introduction. No, I only had to do it four times. I know. Wait, I mean, it's only taken an hour to start the podcast. That's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, Sean, how are you? It's coming up. We're recording this, by the way, everybody, in the just just as the month of July is about to begin. How's the weather where you are, Sean? Oh, actually, it's a heat wave. It's it's actually warm. Wow. It, yeah, no, we're we're expected thirty odd degrees this week. Gosh, well, Sean is, by the way, based in the UK. I'm based in Spain, where we're suffering a massive heat wave. It's already probably 30 degrees this morning as we record this. Wow. How do you bear that? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, no, air conditioning, fans, just cinemas. Cinemas? Yep. <laughs> is that true? The, the cinema viewing go up in the summer because it's got air conditioning? Like, remember, it certainly did in, the, in North America. When I lived in Canada and we get a, high, a heat wave go and see movies all the time it was cheaper back then yeah i guess you, you can only afford to go once a week or yeah or yeah it's, certainly it's not cheap um is that what you like to do in the summer then that yeah. is well movies are one thing that i'd like to do and i mean in fact this is a nice segue into what we're talking about in this episode this episode is all about summer okay so we've each been researching a couple of things relating to summer and uh, want to share them with you on the episode as teachers are either getting ready for their summer break or going into summer term or going to summer school. Uh, what do I like doing in the summer, Sean? Well, I like you know going to see movies. I like uh, barbecues. I actually have a summer holiday, so uh, I have uh, around almost four weeks here in Spain. What about you? Do you work in the summer? I do, yeah. Um, well, I, I live in Oxford, and uh, Oxford is uh, quite popular uh, over the summer. Um, so I tend to work at the the um, colleges um, teaching teachers, actually. Okay. So, uh, busier in summer than I am quite a lot of the other times of the year. I think it's a busy time for the language profession in the UK, though. So Yeah. I mean, in fact, we could talk about that first. If we're talking about the language business of uh, English uh, in the UK, summer is indeed a, a really popular time. I, In fact, one of the things I thought we, maybe I could start with this, Sean, is that okay with yeah, you? Yeah, go, go. On the domestic ELT industry and probably how it relates to summer. So this is from a document I found from British Council um, has been releasing uh, figures and uh, information about what English language teaching is worth to the UK. Um, and a lot of that will have to do with summer schools. But listen to some of these figures. Each year, 
Over 600,000 international students from 200 countries come to study at universities, college, and boarding schools in the UK. But a further 600,000 come to do a short English language course. And I would expect many of these 600,000 descend upon London and Oxford during the summer months. Oh, certainly. I, I would imagine 600,000 in Oxford in the afternoons. Um, you've never quite seen anything like it. If you're in ELT, all you can see in Oxford are, are summer schools. So it's, um, it's, it's an incredible sight. It's just, you think Oxford is busy with students no, no, during the normal kind of academic year, but wow, when the summer comes, it is, uh, it is um, language school central. And, I mean, what it says here, the this British Council report, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, talks about how the ELT industry in the UK has grown by 34% since the year 2000. Oh, really? It's currently wow. worth over £2 billion annually to the UK economy. This figure is expected to rise to £3 billion by 2020. Uh, was that written before the uh, current government decided to change visa laws? Or? <laughs> uh, it probably was. I think this was. When did that happen? This uh, it's an ongoing thing at the moment. It's kind of uh, with the government's policy towards people coming to the country in general. They forget that some people come here to learn. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, shame that. Because uh, certainly the role of English to the UK economy seems to be really huge. In fact, in 2011, it says that the UK had the largest share of English language students studying outside their home country. 50% of students studying English outside their country uh, of the global market um, were, in, were in the UK. So that's more than people going to Canada, the United States, Australia, South Africa, um, any other English-speaking country to study English. In, in, more than 50% went to the, to the UK, or almost 50%. It's amazing, isn't it? So many. I yeah. guess that ties in when people think that um, teachers sort of um, term ends in, in the country where people are uh, teaching. And then a lot of students think teachers are going on holiday, but actually what they're doing is probably going to work in a, a summer school for uh, a few months. And Indeed. I remember when I worked in Barcelona, my, my, uh, I, had a, I would go from nine-month to nine-month contract with my employer and then at the end of the nine months in July, I was sort of let go, and then I would go to I'd go to England to to, to teach in a summer school. I taught yeah. in Cambridge at a summer school there for sort of four weeks with the typical roll on roll off attendance, just craziness of so many students coming through. Uh, Cambridge was another place that was just packed. Yeah, I imagine Cambridge is a packed place. <laughs> It's, yeah, indeed. I've only oh, ever done the summer school once, and that was kind of early in my career. I was, since then, I was, after that, I became a teacher trainer, and you're always busy as a teacher trainer. But um, it's just, it's an interesting and crazy experience of uh, summer schools. I think completely yeah. exhausting. It'd be interesting. Well, maybe we'll do a call out on our Facebook page, see what other people's experiences of summer schools have been, because mine were were were, were, were quite good. Although I was exhausted by the end of four weeks. Just, yeah, and then you're supposed to go back to actually the job you were doing. Go back to your job. Yeah, you maybe have a weekend off. Um, the other the other thing though is I was at a conference at the English Teaching Professional Conference this this June in Brighton, and speaking to several of the publishers and language school organizations there, they said that actually this year they were expecting a much lower turnout, exceptionally, partly because of the whole issue with Greece, which we're living through right now, is creating a lot of instability in their. Uh, in Europe, so they said there's a weak Eurozone, often means less people coming to uh, okay. uh, English, 
And they said the pound has suddenly become really strong as the euro is tumbling yeah, value so. because of the Greek crisis. All of a sudden, everything becomes sort of 10 or 20% more expensive to study in the UK. So uh, they said back in the day when the euro and the pound were almost equal or a sort of one pound, one euro, one pound was one euro 10 or something like that, they had you know far more people uh, studying English, whereas now that they're noticing the numbers are dropping off more and more. Oh, next time we speak, I'll uh, I'll give you feedback and see see what the centre of Oxford like. See if there's a perceivable uh, drop off in the amount of students. That, uh, <laughs> what do you have for us, Sean? What did you? Uh, what did uh, you well, we started quite seriously there, didn't we? we yeah, we, we did. We, we did. did. Um, I'm lightening up. Okay, lightening up. Um, so I mentioned it before that um, you know, students think the teachers have this long summer break. And I think one of the most amusing things I found in getting ready for this podcast was a teacher, uh, again in the States, who decided to ask his students what they thought I think it's a he, um anyway. Um what what his students, what they what what they thought teachers really did over a summer break. Um and the number one number one answer, what do you think it was? Uh, lying on the beach. It is, yeah, but lying on the beach. But they hide behind other people or bury themselves in the sand so the students can't see them. Okay. <laughs> uh, number two on that list was uh, teachers dream about next year's classes. Uh, obviously, this is what the students perceive. I don't know that many teachers that actually dream about next year's classes. Uh, and teachers keep track of days until school, school starts again. So clearly, uh, students uh, feel that... Uh, Teachers love teaching so much they don't bother about um, the holidays. Interestingly, the first comment on this article was from a teacher who said, the first two weeks I go, wee-hee! The second two weeks I spend recovering and the final two weeks I go, no, I'm not ready yet. So a five-week <laughs> vacation there. I don't know where. Yeah, that's probably more of a British one, isn't it? Because actually I always, I always thought British vacation was a very long one at the school, like six weeks. But in reality, it's it's actually quite short compared to a lot of Europe. And the States is three months. And I was in Bulgaria in May, and they were already in summer holiday. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. I but, mean, whether or not they are all getting paid for those summer holidays is a different thing. I remember, as I said, when I was working in Spain, I did have a long summer holiday, but of course I wasn't paid. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So it depends on your contractual things. And I would expect less and less now teachers are getting paid for the long summer holiday. Either that or they have to report in for more and more administrative things. That's certainly what I feel is happening in state school sectors around Europe is even if the classes are out, the teachers still have to go to the school. And yeah, there's a lot of um, professional development days and... Uh, I was talking to my my sisters both work in state education and obviously there's a big change here in the way that uh, the the standards and the curriculum so they're going to spend all summer doing that really so um, uh, we've got serious again haven't we let's lighten the mood <laughs> well shall we go from serious to silly okay go on then. okay silly this is what this is the other thing I wanted to bring to this uh, uh, episode on summer of course in the United Kingdom and in Canada as well I think um, the uh, period of the summer months is sometimes known on the news as the silly season. Uh, those of you uh, listening from the UK will uh, be aware of this term. If you're not, the silly season is like the, the time in the news when um, Parliament and the law courts are not sitting. 
so there's no kind of political news. When things are slow on the news front, so all of a sudden these kind of frivolous news stories emerge in the media as, as, as news outlets are desperate to fill column spaces or, or, or whatever, web pages with news. So you get kind of crazy stories, uh, like s slow news stories. So these kind of cats caught up trees or... Or I'm trying to think of other examples, but kind of silly, silly, silly news stories. Ones uh, it's called the silly season. Um, I've also found that uh, it's not just restricted to England. As I said, in the in the United States, it's um, it's referred to as uh, the slow news season. Um, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, the silly season actually doesn't refer to summer, but it refers to Christmas and New Year. So that's the summer in the Southern Hemisphere. And also uh, that season uh, is called the silly season because they also say there's a higher than usual number of social engagements and higher alcohol consumption is there. So uh, summer season there. And what I liked most about this whole silly season thing is that in other languages it exists as well. But the name for the silly season is often referencing cucumbers um, or gherkins or pickled cucumbers. So, in Dutch, for example, kom komertich. In Danish, agurketit. Uh, Norwegian, agurketit. These are uh, uh, so, you, so. Are these all the all the listeners you're now putting off by uh, by butchering their language? I know. I, if any of you are Dutch. Uh, Norwegian or Czech, as I'm about, to, or Slovak, as I'm about to say, uh, or Polish. I apologize. Czech, Okrokova sezono sezona, uh, Slovak or Hokova sezona. Um, anyway, and so on. So these are all words for um, cucumber, like so cucumber season or pickled cucumber season or gherkin season. Is, is cucumber a fruit or vegetable? It's a. Oh wait, it has seeds, right? Well, the reason I ask is because one of the websites I came across um, last night was uh, saying how watermelon was the most eaten vegetable of uh, the summer. And I kind of like, really? And then it, they were describing cucumber as well. And I can't remember the answer, I mean, but I was just but, wondering but what your thought was. That the tom tomatoes are a, 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 a fruit because they've got seeds? Yeah, something like that. So cucumbers <laughs> and watermelons have seeds. Oh, I'm getting so confused. Yeah, exactly. I just wouldn't. Sorry, I didn't mean to get you off track. It was just. It was. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, the, this website is a whole website about how watermelon is a vegetable, uh, and it's mm, it's kind of really messed with my mind. There you go. Silly season story. That is a silly season story. So silly season, or that's a gherkin pickled cucumber story. Welcome to the dessert island. Yes, you heard that right. Dessert island. A section lovingly named after all the students who've had trouble sorting out their puddings from their sand. Loosely based on an idea that the BBC had some years ago, we interview a person in ELT about things they would take with them if they suddenly had to go and teach on a remote island. And of course, we also find out what dessert they take with them to eat. I'm speaking to David Petrie, whom you might know by his handle as at Teffel Geek. Uh, so, David, how are you today? Good, thanks. Yeah, it's a nice day here. Sun is shining. And here is where? Uh, here is in Portugal. I, I work in uh, Coimbra in Portugal. Um, and how's your academic year been? Has it been a good year? 
It has. It's it's been um, I've been doing lots of different things. I've been doing a bit of writing this year um, and um, teacher training online. Um, so I've had kind of various strings to my bow. Um, but it's all managed to kind of fit together without any loss of sanity. So that's that's been quite good. Um, uh, there is always a question about how sane EL teacher, teachers are in the first place. <laughs> so well, yeah, quite. <laughs> are you looking are you looking forward to summer? I am because this is actually the first summer I'm having off. I mean, other than the the online tutoring, I'm not doing any summer school. I'm not doing any EAP. Um, this is basically it. Um, I get to spend some time at home with my family, enjoying the sunshine, um, taking the kids swimming, and that kind of thing. Well, you say it was a nice relaxing, oh, it will be a nice relaxing July, but of course I'm about to pick you up and, and drop you on a desert island. Well, that's um, true, but then I'll be away from the kids. I won't have anyone, you know, to, to, to bother me. No, no more kind of, Daddy, Daddy, please come here. <laughs> um, so we asked you to choose three things to take with you. So what methodology book would you take with you and why? Um... Well, I've actually chosen two because I'm, I, I'm not quite sure what the um, situation on the desert island is, you see. Uh, my first thought, my immediate thought, was to take Beyond the Sentence, which is uh, Scott Thornbury's book on uh, discourse analysis and structures, um, because it's a really nice book for teachers who are working with learners that need to access or produce texts of any kind, or at least on any kind of meaningful level, um, beyond the kind of you know, those, those sort of uh, fakish course book readings where you end up with a bunch of true-false questions on, yeah. on graded texts. Um, and I found it a really useful thing for working with um, exam students when you've got the kind of the, the discourse analysis tasks at the back where they're looking at lexical cohesion um, or coherence within texts. Um, that's really useful for reading um, for uh, exam classes, um, this kind of thing. But it's a desert island, so I'm not sure how many other texts the students will have access to um, beyond those that we scribble in the sand. Um, so my, my second thought was um, I'd actually take something that I wanted to read. Um, <laughs> and... Um, well, you know. Yeah, no. Um, so I was thinking uh, Complex Systems and Applied Linguistics, which is Diane Larson Freeman and Lynn Cameron's book, which looks at complexity theory and its relationship to language, and beyond that, it, its relationship to, to language teaching and language learning. I should say I haven't started reading it yet. Um, is that your light summer reading then? It is, yeah. Um, I mean, the idea of language as a self-organizing system is something that I find quite intuitively compelling. Um, and the reason I really want to read the book is to see to what extent the theory backs up that idea. So fair enough. So if push came to shove and you could only get one in your bag, you'd go for the second one? I think I would, yeah. I think just um, thinking about the way that language is organized and the way that language evolves, I think would actually maybe be more useful in terms of guiding the way that I teach the students, um, especially if they didn't have access to, to any kind of meaningful texts. Uh, your second resource would be the resource book. 
Uh, I'd have to go with grammar practice activities, which uh, I think Penny wrote in the 90s. It's, it's, it's uh, been around for a while now, hasn't it? It has. Um, and it's basically, it's my go-to book uh, for ideas when I don't have any. Um, or if I'm working with a course book and I notice that there's no actual productive stage in on, on the page, you know, they sort of... Uh, students are expected to spend 45 minutes doing um, text-based uh, manipulation of a language point, but there's no actual production. Um, then that's the book I go to to find something to to try and work with, um, to to yeah, just give them a chance to do speaking or whatever it happens to be. Um, and yeah, it's I think probably the the book that I refer to most in the teachers room. You're allowed to take one more thing with you to help your lessons, so what would that be? I was thinking about that, and the only thing I could come up with is Cousinair rods. You know, once you go beyond solar-powered laptops or, you know, fully loaded iPods with spare batteries and this kind of thing, um, then really you need just something that you can manipulate. And I just think Cousinair rods can be used for so many different things um, that that would probably be the most useful thing I could take. So after all this uh, teaching and learning has, has taken place, we are on a dessert island, of course. Um, so what dessert are you going to sit down and eat? It would have to be uh, pistachio and mango kulfi. Um, this is... Um, my local Indian restaurant um, makes this on their dessert menu, and it's just the thing that I have every time I go there. Um I, it's just the the way they make it with the condensed milk. It's just this sort of sweetness overload, um, which I find particularly tasty. So I think that would have to be it. So thank you very much for your time. Books and desserts are packed. And it's now time to uh, drop you in the middle of nowhere. So uh, enjoy that and enjoy your summer, David. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Obviously, some of the time of, of swimming outside pools, especially in Spain, I would imagine. So what is the scientifically proven uh, perfect temperature for a summertime swimming pool? Celsius or Fahrenheit? You can give me either. For a summertime pool, a perfect temperature? Yep. 19 degrees. No, slightly more. 21 degrees Celsius. No, 24 degrees, apparently. 24? That's that's like warm. That's, <laughs> it's supposed to be. That's, like, that's it, like a lukewarm bath. It says any temperature over 90 degrees, Fahrenheit, this was in Fahrenheit originally, any, any, so 75 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 24 degrees uh, Celsius. So any temperature over 90 degrees Fahrenheit is too hot, and any temperature under 70 degrees Fahrenheit degrees is too uh, too cold. Uh, silly season. Let's have a silly fact. What's the world record for people applying sun cream at the same time? Oh, uh, three thousand four hundred and twenty-three. Oh, the, obviously you've got a bigger imagination than the Australians because the world record was set on January the eighth, two thousand and twelve, and it was one thousand and six participants who applied sunscreen for two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so may, were these all teachers while they were counting off the days before their classes started? Yeah, exactly. Nothing else to do, so they'll put, put sun cream on. Um, more serious, but an interesting summer fact. Probably not in the silly season. Uh, you know the Eiffel Tower in France, yeah? Yes. So uh, when it's hot in the summer, how much does the Eiffel Tower actually grow because of heat expansion? Oh, that would be interesting. So let's say like a centimetre. 
That's it, one centimetre. Is that the best but, you can do? Well, up or outwards? Like, I, Well, it says making the tower grow, so one presumes it's upwards. So, like, yeah, like, so it expands. Yeah. Right, like, like 1.5 centimetres. No, nowhere near. Five centimetres. Nowhere near. Ten. Seventeen. Seventeen centimetres? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. It's quite high, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, is... I'll give you one more, then. Since you, you quizzed me in episode four, so um, this okay. is my revenge, isn't it? Uh, can you name the top five summer vacation activities in the United States? Top five summer vacation activities in the United States. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a park, like amusement park, like Disney or a six uh, Going to a park or a national park, that's number four. That's number four. Barbecue. Nope. <laughs> uh, going shopping in a mall. Number Shopping is number one, yes. <laughs> okay, all right. Got that one. Okay. I'm going to the movie cinema. It's not there, no. Uh, uh, okay. So shopping, uh, but park... Uh, Camping, going camping. Uh, nope. Uh, what else do you do in the uh, summer? Like, well, you there you go. I'll put you out of your misery. Number two, the Americans visit historical sites. And number three, they, they go swimming. And number five, they go sightseeing, apparently. These are all on random facts, randomsummerfacts.com. Uh, and Just um, take randomsummerfacts.com's word for it, then. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, we, you know how we check our facts rigorously, Lindsay, for this. Exactly. I am a course book writer. <laughs> um, all right, then, course book writer. Last one for you. Why are the dog days of summer so named? Isn't it something about, like, on dog days of summer? Okay, I remember this. Isn't it something like... Like, uh, so if people don't know what the dog out in the sun is so hot that no it's not uh, those of you who might not know what the dog days of summer are allegedly july the 3rd to august 11th are the dog days of summer and this is when it's the hottest um but, but isn't that because dogs are sort of all lying out in the shade uh, apparently not i did check this on two sources okay all right it's well, to then. do with the dog star cirrus uh because that's the major constellation overhead at the time apparently Really, overhead of the northern hemisphere. I won't presume so. Yeah, yeah. Wow. There okay. You, there you go. Some like... facts galore, me. Oh, that's amazing. Hey, shall we have a Carrie's corner? Yeah, why not? That should be good fun. You'd think the word summer would be fairly straightforward, wouldn't you? You know, fairly non-problematic. Um, but in my experience, no. I mean, when I was living in Italy. The, the actual word, the, the term, the concept of summer could sometimes um, lead to heated arguments. Uh, um, a lot of them with my boyfriend at the time, my Italian boyfriend, who loved heated arguments about absolutely anything. But the fact that they were repeated in class with my students kind of led me to explore the whole idea a little bit more. So um, let's take a, a day in early June. It's hot, it's sunny, we're, um, we're wearing shorts and eating ice cream and you know that to me is full-on summer but um, when I say that to the students you know oh, it's a lovely summer's day and, and they'd come back with yeah, what do you mean it's not summer it's spring still summer starts on the 21st of June and uh, and this seemed to be like so such a given you know it was like there was no other way of conceiving it and I realized that I was equally set in my ways because for me summer um, started when the warm weather came and, and finished when the warm weather went. Okay, well, in Wales, maybe it's more to do with um, the length of, of the day, of sunlight hours, rather than warmth or lack of rain. But um, I realised that we had pretty different concepts about seasons. 
know, thinking about it for this podcast, um, I, I did what we, you know, always do. I thought I'd Google summer and turned to um, the old favourite Wikipedia and read the English entry for um, summer and, um, no surprises really, it kind of more or less chimed in with what my idea of summer has always been. Um, Although it's interesting to see that um, in Ireland, for example, uh, summer officially starts on the 1st of May. Um, In the States, um, summer starts at the end of June. And, of course, according to uh, the Italian entry that I then um, switched to in Wikipedia, just to see whether or not Wikipedia would uh, stick with me or or go with the old Italian arguments um, that I was used to from 20 years ago. And, of course, there it was. Um, Summer starts on the 21st of June. Although, you know, there was a concession to there being a difference between an astronomical summer and a a meteorological summer. So, um, there you go. Who'd have thought? And I think that's it. That's uh, episode six of the Tefl Commute done. We're going to take a summer break uh, now. So we'll be back uh, in the autumn with some more fun and games for your daily commutes. So that's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me, everyone. Have a good summer. Bye. As your commute is coming to an end, here's something you can take into class. Well, actually no, it's summer, so you don't need an activity. Take a leaf from the About Education website and follow their advice. 1. Get away from it all. 2. Try something new, expand your horizons. 3. Do something just for yourself. 4. Inspire yourself. You can read more of their advice at our website, www.tefelcommute.com. We'll be back with more activities to try out in the autumn. You've been listening to The Tefl Commute, an original podcast produced and presented by Lindsay Clanfield, Sean Wilden and James Taylor. Don't miss out on any episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and by visiting us at www.tufflecommute.com.